Hey everybody, it's John. I wanted to remind you that we do have a Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash alien minute. Over there on Patreon, Mitch and I discuss subjects concerning movies and television and just about anything else we want to talk about. So uh, if you want to come over there, you can subscribe for $2 a month for one episode or $5 a month for every episode at patreon.com forward slash alien minute. Thank you. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to 007 by 7, the podcast where we are investigating the James Bond films seven minutes at a time. I'm John Ingle. And I'm Mitch Bryan, and today we're looking at minutes 91 through 98, which begin with Bond learning about the sex film and end with Bond punching out a man at the rendezvous point. In between, Bond and Grant go mano a mano in one of the greatest screen fights in movie history, after which Bond and Tanya get off the train to take advantage of Grant's escape route. And today we welcome back to the show Todd Norris, uh, who the last time was here kind of as a cinematographer observer, and now he's here to talk editing in this very famous uh, sequence. Thanks for joining us again, Todd. Yeah, thank you so much. It's exciting because you're right. I, I finally get to talk about my other cinematic passion, which is editing. I think this is the first time I've uh, been able to talk about that, you know, in, in other other than just a geeky conversation uh, with with you or somebody. But yeah, so thank you for that. And also, I will say you've had such great guests on this show. I've been listening to this season that uh, it's it's a little bit intimidating and truly an honor to be the guy who gets to talk about the fight scene <laughs> on the train. So thank you so much for having me on. You know, this scene was the one that everybody wrote about for all through the 60s and really even into the 70s as the greatest James Bond moment in the series. And I don't know whether eventually it kind of gets eclipsed maybe by by the Union Jack parachute jump stunt, by just some of the sheer bravado of the, um, of the stunt sequences. But this was something people were really writing about because it kind of changed the way movies were made. Uh, I know that David Boardwell has spent some time talking about how the Bond films increased the um, intensity of editing, the number of cuts per second, you know, that people would write about Peckinpah in 1969 with The Wild Bunch and how speed and editing would, would be shown up in a way that really was spectacular in an action scene. But prior to that, it was this, and it's the speed and, frankly, brutality at which this scene plays back, uh, plays out in front of us. But, before we get there, we're still in a couple of shot reverse shot scenes, uh, this conversation between Bond and Grant. And I just wanted to throw one thing out, which I didn't mention last time and I'm not sure I was aware of, is the fact that behind Grant are two garments on the wall. One is yellow and one is blue, and it's the James Bond blue. It's the blue he always wears, you know, whether it's his Muncie wear shirt or his onesie and Goldfinger. It's that blue. And it's weird because it's like yellow makes me think of Tanya, whether that's her blonde hair or I know she's she's actually in one, at least one kind of yellowish ensemble. And it's like the spirit of Bond and Tanya are right there in the frame behind Red Grant. Well, also, uh, you know, to jump ahead in this scene, when the lights get shot out, the dominating colors of the scene are the blue of night and then the yellow of the train, you know, the, the lights that flash by in the train it definitely becomes a whole blue and yellow sequence. So I think there was a definite attention to those being the two dominant colors of this whole scene. And, you know, if you think about Grant's yellow hair, <laughs> sort of in a way, it, there's right. definitely a, bu- a blue-yellow thing going on. But uh, kind of like the whole teal-orange uh, color grading fetish that infected the movies for about 10 years that's maybe starting to slowly wane. This was a, a pioneer of that look. Bond seems genuinely indignant in this sequence he really is and i can't decide whether he's as indignant or whether he's just trying to get under grant's skin anyway he can but he starts out by talking about a pretty sick collection of minds and will eventually ask what lunatic asylum grant has been released from uh any thoughts about this sort of moral indignation i agree that's how i read it too there's like almost a disappointment or something in there and 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 it's interesting because, so this is our second James Bond film. 
So if we're just following the films, the first film is a off the off the reservation wacko Doctor No, right? Not Russian, not uh, official in any way. So that's one thing. This is supposed to be, I think there's a certain, and we get a lot of discussion of this through the early parts of the film as well, of this is the way we do things. Don't worry, that guy follows us all the time. Uh, We kind of have an agreement here. And I think that this is him sort of coming to terms with the fact that it's not the civil Cold War anymore, that things are getting out of hand. And maybe there was an expectation of, well, sure, they might things might heat up and the stakes might get high enough and I might get killed. But this is like a whole other ball game to, to Bond. That's how I like to read this, and I think it's interesting because it's him saying, "Okay, now we're now we're in Wacko Land, and these people are supposed." I thought I was dealing with official official thing here, and now it's the Spectre thing, and now it's this guy who's clearly crazy and you know, uh, murder a, 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 a psychopath. You know, so I don't know. That's how I read it, and I think it's interesting. It's an interesting way to read it, even if it's not what was intended. That's what I'm going with. I read a little bit about this scene in uh, an, an interview with Peter Hunt, the editor, and um, and Mitch, or you guys may know about this, but there's a, a line of dialogue that got cut uh, by the censors that's in the script. So Red Grant, after he mentions the existence of the films, uh, of, of the two of them in bed, uh, he's, he says, what a performance. And that is supposed to be one of the things that that James Bond is reacting to, but they cut that line. So it just ends with Red Grant giving out a little bit of a laugh. And that's when he starts talking about, you know, the lunatic asylum. So anyway, it's just interesting that what a performance was cut. Oh, and then that later in the, in the movie, when uh, James Bond looks at the film before he throws it away at the end of the movie, he apparently says he was right. What a performance indeed, or something like that. And that, (laughs) and that That got, got that got cut. So anyway, it's funny because he's in doing that he's bringing into this conversation the sexuality of the two men and I'm trying to think of the how far we have to go until we get to Javier Bardem coming up to Bond between his legs you know saying nobody's ever touched you like this how do you know I'm paraphrasing but that's that's the the mm-hmm. exchange so yeah it's interesting that Connery Bond is reacting to some kind of comment about his sexuality yeah, definitely. And, you know, just the, the blocking of the scene with him in this inferior position and uh, Grant uh, wielding the gun at him and standing over him and then slapping him. You know, there's definitely this sort of power imbalance going on in terms of the blocking. And um, what I find interesting, too, is the contrast of their performance. Uh, and this may be intentional. And I was thinking that maybe Terrence Young demanded of Robert Shaw to stay blonde, not only for authenticity to the book, but because of this scene in particular, because when the lights are going to go out, that one way of keeping them straight <laughs> in this fight scene oh, yeah. is, is the color of their hair because their suits are almost identical and they're in the dark. So, uh, you know, can you imagine if they both had dark hair, you'd be like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> um, but anyway, what I wanted to bring up before the fight happens is that I noticed that Robert Shaw in this scene, and maybe for the whole movie, I tried to see if he ever blinks his eyes, and I don't think he ever blinks in this whole movie. And so it's kind of like... Uh, you know, like a doll's eyes, you know, it's got dead. I was just going to say something about that. If you didn't. And, and by contrast, Sean Connery, I never really noticed it, but his eyes, you know, especially in the scene are very expressive, a lot of movement and a lot of blinking. And, you know, it's, he's, uh, he's more expressive than I gave him credit for. And I think that he's got a, this is stating the obvious, but Sean Connery's face you can't stop looking at it. And I think that's one of the reasons for the success of these movies is there's just, he's got a star quality and it's even in a scene like this, it's really exhibit. He's exhibiting his power. He gets smacked across the face by red grant and has to recover from that with typical aplomb. But I think it's really interesting how British uh, Robert Shaw is in this scene. He even says something, you know, is that your your word as an English gentleman after Bond offers to buy him off. And I'm trying to figure out what's going on class-wise here because it's not like nobody references the book. In the book, he's Irish, and Bond clocks that. In this case, we haven't heard him speak until he gets onto the train, and he's speaking with a very precise upper-class English accent, arguably more upper-class than Sean Connery's gentle Scottish burr. So what's going on there? 
I don't have an opinion, so I'll have to defer to John on this if you're asking the question. Yeah, I was trying to, I I don't know what the deal, you know. I I don't either. I don't either. It's so weird because he says, as an English gentleman, and says it with such, such complete, you know, contempt in his voice, but it's like, you sound like an English gentleman deriding the English gentleman. Well, it's very odd. I guess what I got from it was a sense of cynicism of that, you know, that, that, English gentleman has a facade of trustworthiness, but but with you know experience has proven that to be BS, and that maybe so when he's saying hey you know when he asks him the question about uh, what it, is the line that like whatever you're being paid will double it something like yeah, that yeah 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 and he's like oh yeah why can I trust you your word is an English gentleman I see it as as a cynical comment of like yeah I know how much that's worth right but you're right, right in terms of the class dynamic of since they do seem kind of similar <laughs> well i guess you could put it that way too like i'm an english gentleman as well you know like and you can't trust me so i can't trust you <laughs> <laughs> well it's it's also funny that he very quickly moves on to you know i'm going to kill you and it's going to hurt and i'm not going to put you out of your misery till you crawl over here and kiss my foot so on some level, beyond the psychosis of that, he's also saying, you can't buy me, <laughs> you know, this offer of money. But then when Bond says, I-, I can give you, you know, gold sovereigns and I can give you what we figured out is probably about $10,000 worth of, worth of money at that point, at that day and age, for $10,000 and a cigarette, you know, I mean, it's, he, changes, he changes up a little bit. Well, my question is, when Bond makes this offer, which is kind of a tepid offer, like I don't get the idea that Bond th- thinks it's going to work at all to double. Uh, we'll pay you double. I don't. It doesn't feel like a real offer. It kind of just feels like something he's saying. And uh-huh. my question is: Is he is he playing chess here? Is he like okay? I'm going to see if a if even the slightest little light goes off when I offer money to know whether I can use this gambit later. Like that's that's all I can think of because it really feels like oh we'll double it. He doesn't feel like he's really making a plea. He's just saying what he's supposed to say right there. But I want to think that Bond is is going, okay, let me see if even a glimmer, and there's even a glimmer in his eye at the idea of money so that when I make this offer but with the cigarette and the gold sovereigns later, it'll, it might work. I don't know if that's the case. but Because all of it feels kind of um, going through the motions. Like yeah. you're supposed to, you're supposed to adult, try to double the money. That's what that's probably in the handbook. You know the <laughs> MI6 handbook. Make sure to offer them double the money. We have, you know, we have a budget for doubling henchman's money uh, set aside. But you know, I don't. I feel like this in this day and age. Speaking of editing, in this day and age, you would probably get a close up of Red Grant upon the offer. We'd probably get a beat there to tell yeah. us that that's what Bond is doing or that Bond detected something or something like that. Here, it's just it's just kind of, they stick with the same coverage and they keep going forward. So I'm sort of reaching to find that. I don't know if that's there, but it's something I have to think because it just doesn't feel like there's any purpose behind the offer to me. Like, it's, nobody thinks that's going to work. It was never going to work unless it was just to, just to see if he would kind of, his ears would, would perk up at the sound at the offer of money i don't know i think it's it's so cool to look at it this way whether it's you know we don't know but it's great to be able to kind of go back through this retroactively step by step because it's the next the next move is bond asking for a last cigarette essentially kind of also classic you know yeah kind of (laughs) intimating i know you're gonna kill me so can i have a cigarette (laughs) and then the way red grant turns it down is just hilarious he's just like not a chance i mean (laughs) it's really great i think we're in handbook territory still though it's in the ask for a cigarette (laughs) for a cigarette and then in the specter handbook it's like don't give them the last cigarette whatever you do it's gonna be (laughs) some there's gonna be something in that cigarette or you know like they just know better yeah i prefer my own yeah that's so funny they sweated all that out of that guy that they got the passwords from earlier on so then when bond says i'll pay for it somehow you're right john it goes from the very general to something very specific you know and this question of oh okay what you got to pay for it with yeah is it what is it about like what is the difference between this offer and the double your money offer i think that's exactly it it's one specific and one is like i can pay you money right now i'm not asking about the mi6 paying you double I can give you something for that cigarette. I mean, yeah, does Bond gesture to the case, or does he do anything to indicate? I mean, I have the money here on the premises to Red Grant that. I'm yeah, trying to what think with? Because he says I'll pay for it. Well, he asked the question, with. but I'm wondering, like, if 
if Red Grant, why is Red Grant asking the question? You know, does does he go? Oh, you must have money now. It must be a substantial amount of money too, because maybe he's just thinking, yes, they they surely carry around a certain amount of money. Yeah, all of this is like again. They know about each other's tactics or something. It kind of feels like, you know, and they're going yeah, to the Yeah, because if I kill you, I'll then... search your body and get whatever money you have on you anyway. So what, what's, yeah. what, is, what are we talking about here? That's, that's he he just baits him in with something, yeah. And we know that happens because that what happens at the end of the fight. Like, Bond yeah. takes all of his money. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Sorry, Todd. I, I kind of stepped on you there. Well, no, I was just going to say it's, you know, we're at this moment now where he says up there in that case, right? And there's this cut to Red Grant uh, where he tilts his head back and looks up and, and spots the case and then looks very quickly back at James Bond. And you're talking about the fast editing of action scenes being set in this movie. But I think the fastest cut in these seven minutes is that reaction shot of Red Grant looking up really quickly at the case and looking back. It's like a second. And um, it's really an interesting cut. Uh, boom, boom. So I think you're right. I think James Bond uh, was using that as a setup to kind of de- determine Red Grant's susceptibility to some kind of concrete thing of money because once he makes a specific thing of in that case, suddenly Red Grant really changes. You know, the, the framing size of the shot changes sort of to, you know, so that we can see the case. But that very quick head turn and everything, suddenly that's the beat. That's the moment that makes Red Grant change is when there's this concrete physical money right now or something you know versus an abstract hey we'll double it i i feel like the choice of the quick cut too i i felt like it might be a bit of a faint like that that hunt was trying to had the had the look been longer i would have been fully convinced that this was just the classic hey over there bonds attacks but it's so quick and i if i remember right when they cut back it's sort of behind grant and the gun is back in the foreground so, so immediately I'm like, oh yeah, he can't do anything right here. Like I remember thinking that when I saw the, the cut, there's that one twinge of what I'm used to from movies is there's a thing for you to look at when you look away, I'm going to jump you. But it cuts back so fast and the gun's right on him that you're immediately like, oh, that, was, that wasn't even what that was about. But for a second there, I thought it might be. So maybe there was an intentionality behind that to make us think that this was going to be Bond's move, but no. Uh, qu- we're quickly dismissing that. I don't I bet know. That's, but, I bet you're right. I bet mm-hmm. you're absolutely right. And, and there's another great one-two then that comes up after this that's done in terms of acting and not in terms of editing because the the way that Bond Connery paces this opening of the first case and handing the sovereigns over and then Grant saying throwing them over here and he throws the money over there it's so cool when he says you know he says there's another there's more in the other case here let me get it and he moves really fast. And it and it's he slowed everything down and then he goes oh here let me get it and he moves fast and then Grant goes hold it right there and it's such a great I buy it completely one hundred percent because there's just this modulation of the it's kind of like James Bond is smart enough to know that if I slow it down and then I just kind of speed up and kind of lunge for the thing it'll trip him and then he'll 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 be mine <laughs> yeah yeah it totally works so is and, it so what you're saying is it's Go slow, go fast, because that'll trick him into thinking I've got something. There's something else happening here. Yes. And then when it, nothing else happens here, then that'll sort of put him at ease for the next thing that happens, which is something that's going to happen. Yeah. Like, is that what you're saying? I mean, well, I don't yes. know if that was worded that's, very well. That's yeah. kind of what I'm saying. Yeah. That he is playing four. He's, that that classic four dimensional chess here. He right? is totally. That, that likes to talk about. He is. Yes, well, don't he you, is totally two steps ahead of him. Yeah. And don't you think though? You know that. What's probably going through Red Grant's mind because of this manipulation that Bond is doing is that, oh, yeah, it's a standard case. Here, let me look. That he probably thinks, oh, there's probably a gun in there or something. So he's it's the old, hey, 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 let me take that, you know, mm-hmm. not knowing that it's a trap. So it's, you know, the expectation of Red Grant is probably that he opens it up and, you know, finds a finds a weapon inside. Something like that. Ah, very right. tricky, Bond. To, you know that we have to assume he has not opened the briefcase up to this point because it would have blown up in his face prior to this. So it's you know, but he doesn't know what's in the case. That's what Bond is is counting on. And I think it, he had searched Grant's briefcase earlier, uh, in in before you know dinner to see what was in there. It was the other guy's stuff, and so he knew that Grant hadn't been hadn't gone through it. So. See now, does that make uh, sense? Yeah, 
what I'm wondering now is how would this scene have played out had it been Wallace Shawn instead of Robert <laughs> Shaw? Like, oh, the, that briefcase is the one that, um, yeah, I don't know. Just can't help but to think about that. Yeah. It's this like, idea of like there's two, anyway. You'd like to think that, wouldn't you? <laughs> Those gold sovereigns are mine. No, sorry. It, it's hard not to do Wallace Shawn impersonations when it comes up. Watch too much uh, Next Gen or uh, Deep Space Nine. So did you notice, Todd, that when the when it actually explodes, it's off camera? Yeah, the I explosion actually, I made a note triggered. about that. It's so, weird timing, right? It's kind of a off Yeah, beat. we hear the sound, the sound happens over the shot of Bond, and then when we cut, mm-hmm. the smoke is already pouring out. My hunch is that, you know, the practical gag didn't work out very well, and they only did one or two takes of that, and so Peter Hunt's so like, all right, the only way to make this work is to start the sound off camera and right. let it go. But it smokes the room up, which I really appreciate. I, f- I like the fact that, you know, it's it's a, this is not like, you know, a Ridley Scott smoke that just happens to be there. This is motivated smoke that hangs in the air during the fight, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, you know, if we want to launch into talking about the, the, the fight scene or just editing in general, I'm ready to, to let it rip, but. Uh... Okay, go. <laughs> Um, well, first, let me ask you a question, Mitch, because when you asked me to be on this, you had mentioned that this train sequence really set a trend in the 1960s. You know, the James Bond series in general, but in particular, this scene really set a trend in terms of how action scenes or at least fight scenes were done. So uh, give me a little bit more background about that. Uh, like how... I uh, I can only anecdotally know about how James Bond was re- received in the 1960s. You're a little bit older than me. I mean, you would have been too young to remember this film. But tell me a little bit more about how this scene, what you know about how this scene changed, how people perceived fight scenes or how it influenced films thereafter. Well, there's a couple of things. One is that I know how badly it was cut up on ABC when this was shown on a Sunday night movie. And so that speaks to what was perceived as an extreme level of violence and hard action. And Terrence Young has remarked that if it weren't for the joke at the end where Bond says old man and takes the money, they would have been in all sorts of trouble with the censors because there was nothing quite like this had been shot prior to this in a British or American film. Uh, They shoot with three cameras, which was kind of unusual. It's one thing to blow up a bridge and shoot it with three cameras. It's another thing to decide to do a fight in an enclosed space with three cameras to give you the kind of coverage that you you can use. Um, And I'm sure we'll identify a few other tricks that the editor brings to bear on the way that this stuff is put together. But it just was the thing that everybody wrote about. It was the thing about this movie. Nobody writes about the helicopters or the boats and the fire and the water at the end. But, yeah, this was like a big deal. It was a kind of editing and a kind of brutality and a kind of speed that nobody had really ever seen before. And I think I don't remember the number, but I know that Boardwell did clock this as, you know, edits per was looking at the general amount of edits per movie and that this really accelerated it. And believe it or not, Goldfinger accelerated it even more. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, it's funny. Well, go ahead, John. I was going to say, I, you know, we're thinking about the history of sort of physical violence in, in cinema, um, talking about th- something like this hadn't been done before. I always think about the um, scene in Pick Up on South Street, Samuel Fuller's Pick Up on South Street, when that the commie villain... beats gene peters right because she's not you know he figures out she's not going along with his program anymore but it's all done in this one shot you you remember what i'm talking about mitch i mean anybody who's seen pick up on south street it's it's been a while he he follows the action across the room and it's very visceral and they don't cut away from it at all Mm -hmm. it's just a guy beating a woman in in a room and it's just brutal and i always think god that's really early for something to get past like this to get past the censors it really feels even more so than um and the big heat, you know, the the classic uh, coffee to the face that Gloria Graham takes from Lee Marvin, that's done in cuts and done kind of like with movie trickery where Samuel Fuller is like, I ain't doing that. I'm shooting this thing raw and you're going to see it all. And how that com- but how that compares to the violence that's inherent in the cutting of this scene where I mean, the context is different, obviously, 
but also it's how much more visceral a cut can be. And then also the close quarters here. I'm just impressed with the scene. I'm impressed with the fact that the camera seems like it's about to get like knocked over by these guys because they're in such close quarters, differentiating that also where Fuller pulls back. He's got the camera on a, on a dolly and he's pulling back and like showing you the whole room as, as they block that horribly violent scene. But I don't know. It's just the differences there where I, I, I'm always, I'm always wondering how he got Fuller got away with that and pick up on South street. That wasn't one of his Indies. That was at Fox and he had to go through the censors. And uh, I'm always amazed that that one got through, but here, this is an escalation of that, but I think full, I don't know. Fuller was kind of the, I don't know. Would you say he was kind of the the first real like he was he was a pioneer of screen violence? So, uh, this is one way. Yeah, to put and it. I would I would also suggest maybe that American movies were getting away with more violence on screen and didn't have to face the censors the way that the British did. The, maybe, the British yeah. have always been much more nervous about violence than sex, and so maybe that was it. That's maybe. possible. Yeah, so you know, I um, my uh, s- stepdad is the one who introduced me to the world of James Bond, and I do recall when he said, "Hey, from Russia with Love is going to be on TV this week," um, and I had already just seen Goldfinger. Goldfinger was my introduction into James Bond, and I saw it at a theater as a kid, and it was fantastic. So I'm like, all right, cool. And and I do remember what he said is, yeah, there's a great fight scene on a train. You know, so like and that was his that was his memory of the movie. So this mm-hmm. is the the moment that for that that people seem to remember. I think that um you know, if we talk about action on film, not specifically fight scenes, but just stunts and what film, what cinema is good at is, you know, representing this physical world that other media can't uh represent as well. It's things like this. And so it started actually, I think, with the silent comedians, with Buster Keaton and Harold Lloyd and Charlie Chaplin, who did these physical feats, usually in the in the service of of laughs, but um, did these amazing things. Now, again, it might not have necessarily been um, because of the editing, but more about just, you know, like in Buster Keaton's case, just (laughs) risking your own life in the service of a gag. But still, I think cinema in its purest form, what it offers that other uh, forms of expression, artistic expression can't, relies on editing. You know, editing is the one unique thing. Being able to cut from immediate, instantaneously from one place to another and to bridge time and space instantaneously is something that just can't be done otherwise. And so, you know, a fight scene could be done on radio. It's not, you know, this scene could be done as a radio play, but Surely it wouldn't be nearly as impactful as as the film. You could read it in the book. But again, there's something about actual human beings in front of the camera and then manipulated through cuts to create a sense of kinetic energy that only cinema can can do. And that's where I think Peter Hunt and uh, Terrence Young and everybody else who created this sequence were really exploiting and doing, you know, at the top of their game and really innovating and, and, uh, you know, taking things to the next level. So, um, my hazy knowledge of say fight scenes previous to this, you think of like the serials from the thirties and (laughs) forties that were really hamstrung by low, low budgets. But when you think of those, you think of these, like, like you said, uh, John, except without the, the, uh, violence of Sam Fuller. You think of these, you know, monogram uh, serials with fight scenes in some bad set, and it's like one wide shot, and the camera just kind of pans right and left to kind of keep the action in frame, and the stunt guys are doing a just barely convincing job of making the, the swings look like they're connecting at all. You know, like, it was all... the. Fight scenes just weren't that interesting. You know, I, I hate to say it. As cool as old classic cinema was, fight scenes usually weren't that cool. Unless maybe you were in the hands of Howard Hawks or John Ford or somebody. But generally speaking, they weren't so hot. And so this does take it to another level in terms of the... And, you know, I read Peter Hudd said this scene took three weeks to shoot. That seems really... That might be an exaggeration. I can't imagine three weeks, but maybe. Um, but Yeah, I don't think so. I think he, he spent three weeks I think he spent weeks building it and they would go back and shoot stuff here and there 
and he says that Terrence Young had a great trick where he would leave a very important shot out on the day and say, well, we're going to go back and get that. And he would have it budgeted in a day of pickups and you would go and they would have to give it to him because the crucial shot was missing. And then on that day of pickups, he would have come up with a list of other things he wanted to grab while he had the actor there. Okay. So that combined with the fact that both Young and uh, Hunt maintain that there were two stuntmen and that they are used, you see them once, that there's one one bit where they use the stuntmen and the rest of the time it was the two principals doing all the fighting. And that was probably the other thing that makes the scene so special is that you don't have any moment where you're like, are you sure that's... Are you sure that's Connery? Are you sure yeah. that's Shaw? I mean, they're really they're really going at it. Yeah, I uh, I pulled it up on QuickTime and watched it frame by frame, and it's there's there's more than just two shots with the stunt guys, but um, but it is but very is well. Is it the same take? Is it like did he just it, does he just go? back Yeah, to it the, probably the is take? in terms of coverage. Yeah, they're probably going back to the to the same moments. Um, there's actually one shot where it looks and I could be wrong, but it looks like it's Sean Connery. But that the but that it's the stunt guy, um, it's where he puts his hand over his face. Um, now the close up is clearly Robert Shaw with a with a hand on his face, which I don't really know what that does uh, in terms of <laughs> actual fighting. It's just a hand on your face. So what? You know, it's not like. <laughs> but the wide shot, it's definitely Sean Connery on the left. But boy, that the hair piece on the guy on the right does not match the close up yeah. of Robert Shaw. So I noticed that too. The hair piece, Robert Shaw flops around. So that might have been a places. retake day. It might have been a retake day, and they had Connery, but Robert Shaw was already gone. I don't know. I bet but you're right. Yeah. When you when you talk about the tricks, though. I, I don't know. It's funny because what you know, I'm an editor. I know other people who are editors, and I've read lots of books with interviews uh, of, of famous film editors. And it, the the consensus I think is that um, editing action is relatively easy. And and I know that seems counterintuitive because when you think of flashy editing, or or when people think of editing at all, it's usually in the service of some kind of action sequence or something. And, and I would agree with them that in a way. Editing action is easy, and I, I won't mean that it's not challenging, but if the scene is well shot and well conceived at all by the filmmakers, your job becomes kind of self-evident when you're there with these pieces of film. When you make a cut in an action scene that's wrong, you're aware that it's wrong instantaneously. It looks wrong. There's no and and you can easily diagnose why. Like, oh, okay, the fist, the fist is too. It, it, like it repeated the the action, it looks fake, and you just can easily fix it. So, something about the movement in the frame and the kinetic energy that you're conveying as an action editor, the your choices are sort of obvious. Um, and so, putting together an action scene again, it's a challenge, but um, I think it's much easier to put together a scene like this than it is maybe like when to cut in a in a dialogue scene. You know, like there's a there's a lot of interpretation there, and, and it's really based on performance, and you really need to know about what the what is the real um, goal of the scene, and therefore what are the goal of these characters, and what is the theme of the whole movie. All these sort of thoughts like weigh on your decisions as to when to cut to a reaction shot or whether, but in a fight scene, it's like being in the moment. It's like being a, a an athlete in the middle of a game. You are in the zone, and so you would know exactly what to do. And um, and and therefore it's fun, but it also feels like you're kind of cheating a little bit when you edit an action scene because it's it's almost too fun and too easy to do. So, <laughs> but it's kind of like the choreography. If you look at this in terms of just the storytelling that's being revealed in terms of this as an almost like a dance scene, where it starts, where it goes, when it crosses into the other room, you know, when the guy gets banged on either side of the of the doors when he, when he kicks him back in, when he approaches him and kicks, you know, I mean, it's like they had it all worked out. And so there was probably a very clear, well, I know there was a very clear master choreography to this because one account is young says he and the stuntmen worked it out. They showed the two actors and did it a couple of times until the actors were kind of like, well, why don't you just let us do it? You know? And, and so that he said was his master plan was just to demonstrate that they had figured it all out so much that all the actors had to do was learn how to, how to do it. Well, I also read somewhere that both Robert Shaw and Sean Connery, uh, learned some moves from Turkish wrestlers or something like that, that, that in terms of, you know, 
the stunt choreography that there was some sort of connection to Turkish that wrestling. sounds that sounds way too fabricated yeah, it's probably it's probably bs yeah you never know that's what's funny when you read all these accounts from interviews that were done decades later you had there's either embellishments or actually complete fabrications or mis- people misremembering um but uh but in terms of the tricks, you know, like I did notice slowing the scene down and watching it frame by frame, which is a really fun way to watch these scenes. You really learn a lot. Um, but yeah, Peter Hunt's trick of cutting out frames here and there, there's a there's definitely two instances where there's a there are distinct where he's just pulled out frames. The, the one that's most noticeable is where it's a close up on Sean Connery where he's got his hands up in the kind of karate uh, defense mode when he's putting it like with his arms in an X in front of his face to block uh, some blows by Red Grant. And they just, I think they just cut out a complete blow because his hands just kind of move from one side of the frame to the other. But it happens so fast that it looks kind of like a blur when you just watch the shot at regular speed. It actually looks really cool. But he does that a couple of times, just speed things up and, uh, you know, just get that sense of, energy that maybe the the original shots didn't have it's like you wonder if being 1963 if there was an influence from say the french new wave not in terms of uh, uh what i mean is only in the sense of being freed by these sort of formal rules of editing right. and and you don't you know, have what, to you don't have to match i mean Hunt yeah. said that he's made it very clear that that he was throwing out a bunch of rules about what has to match and what and what doesn't, and how to let the propulsive action of the cuts carry things ahead, and his willingness to cut away. F- I mean, you don't see the gun go off that shoots the light out. Right. You just see the gun kind of waving around. You hear a sound effect. By the time you hear the sound effect, you're already on the other shot, which is the insert shot of the light bulb being shot out. And then when you cut back to the men, the lighting has been changed, and we're already in the dark. Yeah. And that's all done in a in the blink of an eye, and yeah. you don't even think about it. It's so fast. Yeah, and then right after that, there's this the the window, uh, the exterior window gets broken, and there's uh, Ted Moore's cinematography is great there. I, I'm assuming that's just a rear projected background, but they had to light the. You can clearly see the reflection of Red Grant and Connery, and it's really them. And um, so lighting their reflection and matching the exposure of the rear projected train background and breaking that glass and then having the sort of yellow flashing light. There's a lot going on there in terms of timing and just um, precision and control. Uh, it, it looks great. You know, it's just a job well done. An English job well done on this in this fight scene. It's really great to see. Um, the gun goes out the window, right? That's what that's the assumption. Oh, that that's, that's right. What, that yeah. that's what broke the window. That's I, right. I never quite n- noticed it or understood it. And then I thought, well, that's why he doesn't have the gun now. With right. The big old silencer on it. So that must have been the, the thing that had enough impact to break that glass. And oops, he lost his gun. So now they can fight without a gun in the mix. Yeah. Um, in terms of speed tricks, I don't know if, there, if there's any sort of speed up or slow down other than the cutting of the frames. But I will say, you know, that one of the traditions that this style of editing um, influenced Perhaps uh, when you think of, say, Jackie Chan films, you know, Hong Kong action movies, one of the things that Jackie Chan was known to do in the films that he directed. But I also think the ones that he's in that, say, Samuel Hung or whoever directed was that a lot of times they would shoot the fight scenes at maybe 22 frames a second or 23 frames a second so that there was just a slight imperceptible speeding up of the action where it wouldn't look comical, you know, it didn't look like Benny Hill, (laughs) but it was just enough to give it a little extra sense. And that all seems to be informed from the sort of the Peter Hunt style of, of action editing where you throw out those rules to make it more energetic. Well, they definitely speed up the shot where Red Grant pulls the garroting wire out of the watch, which apparently is a real thing. I didn't realize that, but I guess they had hidden garroting wires in world war two um, so this was some spy spy equipment, and you know a good a good piano wire will remove your head. So it's it's sharp and it's dangerous. Uh, but that that shot is definitely sped up when that or there's some frames that have been taken out when he's pulling that thing out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I just wanted to comment on Bond managing to get his hand up between his neck and the wire coming in on his hand, you know, to block that. And I can't help but wonder if dick smith 
or somebody who worked on Marathon Man hadn't seen that and thought, boy, wouldn't it be great if blood spurts out of that hand? And so when they do Marathon <laughs> Man, and you have the exact same move with Roy Scheider putting his hand up for the for the garroting wire, and there's this really uncomfortable uh, spurt of blood that, that is the wire cutting through the hand, thanks to Dick Smith. Yeah. Do we get anything out of the cold open here as a payoff or a... Uh... At least, uh, do we have a subliminal feeling that Bond's not going to get out of this one because we saw him, Kim, get killed earlier in the movie oh, yeah. in a similar way? Like, is that part of the cold open to just kind of set it, this up for us? Like, well, we know Bond's good. We know when we get there that the audience is going to know Bond's going to win. So we can we plant just a tiny seed of doubt in the back of their mind by showing him lose once? And so we don't that, have a three beats on that garroting wire, right? He, we see it once uh, the cold open, and we haven't seen him use that ever again in the movie, right? I don't think so. I don't think no. so. I don't yeah. think so. So it's a one-two, not a one-two-three, which is also kind of interesting. Yeah, I yeah. think that's great. We get the third one. We do get a third one, but it's it's once Connor once Bond reverses it yeah, and uses it on him, one. so right. he gets the third one. I, I do want to mention in terms of the editing of that moment because you've you've mentioned the part where he pulls the wire out of the the watch. But right before that, there is when they're struggling. There's we the, he we reveal it. You know, there's a close up of the struggle, and it's a an insert close up that reveals the watch with the the little uh, end of it hanging out. And then Red Grant notices it, and then uses it. Um, so it's oh, basically yeah, it's a series of three cuts. You know, we reveal the the watch, and then we cut to Grant. And then we cut back down to the watch and his hand pulls it. And so, again, you know, it's funny just growing up after this era, it seems very obvious that that's what you would do. But I really love the clarity of this sequence in terms of it's not just guys flying around and doing stuff and it seeming sort of incomprehensible. There's a definite story beat precision to all of these cuts and especially little moments like that. And I think there was just enough time left on that shot and that shot of Grant for the audience to go, aha, that thing from the beginning of the movie. Oh no. You know, and then, and then it happens. And so we, 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 like Billy Wilder said, let the audience put together two plus two to get four. And I think that's part of the, the pleasure of that moment is like, Oh yeah, I remember that. Oh shit. So, uh, and we've already had a moment where we had to remind, remember back to the briefcase because when he hands the briefcase over to Red Grant, everybody in the audience goes, Oh boy, it's going to blow up in his face. So we've already kind of exercised that brain muscle and, and we get to use it again. Yeah. And then we get to use it again with the knife, you know, which becomes, so this, this, this scene really is all about paying off these, the, the Q uh, get gimmicks and the, the weapon from Grant at the beginning, like this is a big payoff moment, which I think it's funny. Maybe that's an underappreciated thing about this scene. It's not just about uh, the quick editing and the choreography. It's also about story payoff. You know, we've set these cool spy gadgets up and now we're finally getting to see them in action. Uh, I wanted to mention when he does pop out that knife, um, this is the cinematographer in me. I noticed that on the on the insert shot, um, they sw- one of the yellow train lights goes by right at the moment that the knife gets turned, so that otherwise, and you know they had to do that because otherwise, in blue light, that light not, might not sh- that knife might not show up, and so this yellow light swinging by makes the blade shine just for a moment, and then the next cut is Connery sticking it into Red Grant's arm. So again, I just really appreciate the clarity and the precision uh, of of all these little moments like that. That the thought was put in him to make sure that the audience could tell what the hell was going on and could enjoy it. And just like not having Bond saved with a cigarette lighter in his pocket when Grant shoots him in the book, uh, Bond also doesn't kill Grant by shoving that knife into his groin. Not that the censors would have allowed it, <laughs> but it's one more time where, you know, the screenwriters have come in and said, what can we do to kind of bond, you know, make this more of what would become Bondian, you know, which is that we'll surprise you. And so we think he's going to save the day with the knife, but no, he jams it into his arm, which gives him enough time to, to you know, reorient himself. And, and we get into the business with the payoff of the watch. Yeah. 
Did you notice these jump cuts, though, on once Connery manages to... Oh, wait, let's talk about the close-up first. I don't want to forget the Red Grant close-up. Did you see that? Like, it's a Bond point of view, and it's Red Grant's face just coming straight at camera. Yeah, it's yeah. it's only there. It's so crazy. I Yeah, I really loved that moment. The, again, there's this real sense of rhythm and flow to this scene and, and making it personal and finding the right moments to get in close with the actors to, to make it feel really... Like you are there, and and uh, that that's a far cry from the 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 wide shots of some you know Republic serial, you know, where just these bad fist fights happen in a wide shot, and that's it. So, and of course, this became just the language of how fight scenes were done ever since, and are still done today, relatively speaking. You know, those it's moments. just such an unexpected shot, and we never go back to it, and it just kind of pops out at us and puts us literally in James Bond's brain like we are that's that is it's got to be seen as a totally subjective shot Um, but then when once the garot gets turned on red grant there are some really aggressive jump cuts in this final garroting of grant where they're going back and forth between two different cameras that are covering the action not even necessarily the same takes but um i just wondered whether you were struck by the violence of that you know, maybe I was more struck by just the violence itself of that actual wire. You know, there is something really kind of makes me a little queasy about the thought of that. So I, you know, I feel bad. I didn't really notice, honestly, that the jump cutting, although what I do notice, you're right. It's like, there's two different angles, uh, when he gets strangled, they, it's kind of odd. And like they're, they're sort of cutting on the same thing, but just from different angles. So maybe that's right. what you mean. I and do. That's what I mean. And it's yeah. like, it seems to be repeating the action and by going to these different angles that even moves him, I think from frame left over to frame, right. I mean, there's like, it's a big, it's, it's an ugly cut. There's no matching going on here. They're really, and it seems to me it's stringing out the moment of, of his death. Yeah. Yeah. I'm watching it again right now. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it, it is interesting. Um, yeah, that's what it is. They're, they they sort of are crossing the axis. Um, and that's probably part of the whole three camera thing that they covered it from different angles. And Peter Hunt had this material and just felt like it's probably more brutal to make this less um, artful cut. You know, the sort of crossing the axis and weirdness of it makes it feel more brutal. And certainly since center of the frame is poor Robert Shaw here <laughs> being being killed. You're you're not intellectualizing it as like, hey, they just crossed the axis. It's more like, oh my God. Yeah. That's brutal. Yeah. And yeah. and when it's- he when when he drops him down too, like when he lets go of him, the camera kind of tilts down with him in in the, and kind of almost misses him because it's so fast. So there is again a kind of extra brutality in the kind of crudity of the camera work. Uh, that did, that kind of misses him. I think it might have even been handheld. You know, there's this kind of like, oh, he landed on the couch there, and I kind of kind of missed him. Yeah, handheld with with longer lenses than you would expect to be on a handheld camera, mm-hmm. which is the other thing that makes it sort of surreal and weird. Uh, I I noticed only like the fourth time I watched it. I noticed that Tanya is on the couch in the other room, knocked out. Now, it's probably a dummy, <laughs> um, would be my guess, or a stand-in. I can't imagine Daniele Bianchi laying there for all the days it takes to fight. But she's there, and they almost bounce into her at one yeah, point. It's a good I, thing she's knocked out. I missed it, too. Yeah, I mean, Greg Grant literally lands on her at the very beginning, and she's <laughs> passed out. <laughs> I, I had no idea that she was there until watching it again. Oh, well, you know... Maybe being drugged up was good for that moment, you know. So are we done with the fight? Any other thoughts? I do have something to mention. Um, So some of the unsung heroes of this sequence, too, I believe, are the sound editors, the sound guys. Um, Because, boy, I'll tell you, when they're banging into the doors... I think they're using the sound of gunshots for those doors to, to be uh, when, when the doors get banged around and they're throwing some kind of flanger or phaser or something. So there's this really aggressive sound design going on to make this sequence even more intense. And there's a specific increasing in the volume of the sound of the train, the ambient sound of the train on the tracks in the background that gets risen up and, and faded down at certain moments to kind of su- subliminally add to the intensity. And once 
Red Grant is strangled and he drops him down, immediately the ambient sound of the train tracks goes down just a little bit. And then finally, by the time he says old man and takes the money out of his suit, the tempo of the train tracks slows down. I mean, plot wise, it has to because the train is stopping. But you really get this sense of the train being used subliminally to kind of kind of like how, you know, Ridley Scott and the sound guys would use the heartbeat in Alien very subliminally in those scenes to kind of, uh, you know, get your own heartbeat movie. So what I looked up is that there were two guys, Harry Miller and uh, Norman Wanstall are these are the two guys that are listed in the credits as being the dubbing editors. And Harry Miller, uh, now his work is uncredited, but his first uncredited thing on IMDb is Hitchcock's Blackmail, which I believe was England's first sound film, which was originally shot largely silent. And then they went, went back and redid things uh, because of the explosion in terms of everything going to talkies. Um, but he worked on David Lean films. I think he worked on Brief Encounter. And then he did Carol Reed's Odd Man Out. Um, and what I looked up was that initially the film editor was also the sound editor, that that was usually a singular job. And that um, when I can't remember where I read it, but they were saying that uh, Harry Miller's opinion was that you, you'd spent all your time working on picture editing the film that when it came time to doing the sound, you were bored with the movie and you were tired of it. And so that they would usually do a slipshod job on the sound editing so that one of the reasons why Harry Miller was so uh, sought after was that he had specialized in just doing sound and he was really good at it. And the producers saw dollar signs because after their uh, picture editor had <laughs> grown tired of a movie, they could get this guy who was really creative and interesting to, to do a good job. And so then he worked on, I think, all of the Bond films up until Honor Majesty's Secret Service. And I think he probably retired because he was born in 1904. And um, that's his last IMDb credit. And then the other guy worked on those Bond films and then actually, I think, did sound work on Never Say Never Again, interestingly. But um, but I really give those two guys credit for the, the for helping the scene along with expressively using sound of the train and these probably gunshots for the doors and just um, just a thought about that. It's really interesting. So it made me want to go down a rabbit hole and learn more about those guys. Yeah, probably one more thing when we make the list of why this scene is so famous, that use of sound feels revolutionary. It seems really intentional and, and powerful. So things calm down a little bit as the train is slowing down and Bond gets into the next compartment and tries to wake Tanya up and we have a really nice smooth dolly push in on the two of them in a kind of romantic clench and, and she's saying don't leave me because he's like wake up or I'm going to leave you she says don't leave me don't ever leave me <laughs> and and I'm sort of think to myself well I don't know I, I guess that's one for the cheap seats back there to just let us remember that they're they're supposedly still really, really in love. And what's a couple of smacks in the face between between a loving couple, right? Right. <laughs> but I, I do want to say one thing that is really wonderful about this, these next few uh, bits, is that this is a great example of how to make exposition really work. It's up to Connery at Bond to remind the audience what the plan is and what the things are that they have to do. And what makes it great is that Tanya is barely conscious. And so he is trying to get through to her. He's not just giving up exposition. He's trying to get her to do what needs to be done because they have to do this if they're going to escape. And I just wanted to point that out as, you know, in a day and age when we see a lot of bad movies where... People have to shout out exposition purely for the sake of the audience. Here is a great motivated device, which is that she's nearly unconscious and he's trying to wake her up and get through to her so that she can participate in this situation. Yeah, I agree. All right, so we go outside and we've got some really dark day for night going on here. <laughs> I don't know how it looked for you guys, but various versions of this film, it's really interesting. They often overtimed these scenes. So, like, for the drive-in version that you might see of this movie back in the day, it didn't even look like it was it was night. And <laughs> there are earlier versions that came out, like, on VHS, where there's day-for-night stuff, especially when they're driving to the 
to the uh, gypsy camp where it's almost you could tell it's daylight you know so in this version i look i was looking at a couple of versions for the old criterion uh laser disc version but also the the most recent not 4k version and it's really dark it's like they have dialed it down so far that it's almost making the audience have to lean into the situation to see what's going on and i just wonder if you have any thoughts about that one way or another bad timing or or is that intentional I think it looks great, to be honest, you know, like at least in terms of if I were thinking like, okay, I'm going to be watching this in a darkened theater and not in a room where daylight is spilling in. This is probably the appropriate level you would want something to be at. It reads night. Um, And another thing that it's funny, you know. I seem to be the day for night guy when <laughs> on these podcasts because I know we talked about this on Dr. No as well. And I think maybe even a little bit on the previous episode I was on for From Russia With Love. Um, and I have no real love of day for night, but I, I end up having to talk about it. But on this part in particular, what struck me is I think in addition to, because there's a lot of sky in this one where usually you want to hide the sky for day for night for obvious reasons because it's it's too damn bright but because there's a train in these sequences and they have to have these wide establishing shots that show the whole the whole landscape i think what maybe they have done is they've placed in a a graduated filter into the top of the frame so that they've literally darkened the sky because if you look at those shots unless they did this for the you know remastered version and it's a digital thing but i don't think so um, you darken the sky by putting a, a, an ND filter on it that just covers the sky and then the horizon below is actually a couple of stops brighter and then in front of that you stick your day for night filter on and you expose accordingly um, so I think this is actually really good day for night to be honest I was pretty convinced yeah. by it I noticed the guy was yelling Grant 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 and I thought maybe <laughs> This is the first time in the movie we've heard him referred to as Grant, unless maybe at the very beginning with the dossier when they say Donald Grant. Um, Lotte Lenya, I think, maybe maybe mentions his name. But I wondered whether for an audience at the time, maybe he should have been calling Nash Nash so that we knew what he was doing. I can't quite understand him anyway, so maybe it's <laughs> better that way. But um, I just did did notice that he was he was yelling for Grant. And I guess Bond does say it's it's his... It's his escape plan, but does he say Grant's escape plan or Nash's escape plan? I think he says Nash's escape plan. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, so I just thought I would mention that. Uh, it's a flower truck, by the way. Any any thoughts about <laughs> why, why it's a flower? Is this guy a florist? Is this like his, his accomplice? Is this, is this florist, poor guy? <laughs> I had no thoughts about that. Um, yeah. Yeah, I don't. I don't have any thoughts about that either. I don't. <laughs> well, it's going to matter because it's Terrence Young's good taste, and once the sunlight comes out, there's going to be a beautiful bed of flowers in the truck. Mm. And I think that, and I think it just is a one more uh, elegant kind of user-friendly touch versus you know bales of barbed wire or something in the back of the truck. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but I I wonder. Do you notice when he when Bond smashes the hood down on the guy's arms and then he grabs him and I was thinking, well, certainly if it was Daniel Craig, he would have bashed his head into the, into the um, top of the hood. But instead he pulls him away, turns him around and gives him a good old fashioned British slug to the face. And I just wonder whether that's like, let's just keep the sensors happy. We're not going to try to push the brutality here. We need to just keep this thing moving along. Thankfully, John Barry's music is helping us out, making it suspenseful and giving us a little Mickey Mousing on the track. Yeah, is uh, is a punch to the face less brutal than a... <laughs> I don't think so. I mean, I think I would rather... Honestly, I think I'd rather have my face hit a hood, a flat hood, than have a pointy fist right to the jaw. That's weird. But censors never made much sense. Yeah. So What's, what, what this reminded me of, though, is... Um, Ralph Meeker and Kiss Me Deadly, you know, when he played Mike Hammer and there's that brutal moment where he shoves that one guy's hand into the desk drawer or whatever. And all that, that's all I could think of. And when then I smiles. Saw yeah. Is that the oh, one yeah. they cut to him grinning? Yeah. 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 <laughs> so the, this the Ralph Meeker moment of this movie. But but you're right. Yeah, I guess it is funny. I guess a punch to the face does seem 
in movie land, maybe not in reality, but in movie land, it's less brutal than a slam down on the hood. So <laughs> is it is it because he's, you know, this guy is not really part of, he's not probably a true villain. He's just somebody who, I, just I don't- Just a florist. I don't, he's just a florist. <laughs> yeah, you know. <laughs> it appealed to that side of his nature and he's like, I'll just give him the little punch to the face. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> uh, so with that brings us to the end of these minutes. We'll, we'll get to the tying the hands, I guess, in the next in the next seven. But he's getting ready to tie his hands. But the minutes end there, so we've managed to uh, uh, take the take the florist out of the equation, and so it's going to be Bond and Tanya and the florist truck uh, heading off into more adventures the next time we uh, get together. Any final thoughts about these minutes, John or, or Todd? I don't. No, only in that it was just a huge blast to, to talk about editing and, uh, you know, action editing. And it makes me also then want to watch Hong Kong action films, too. You know, that John <laughs> Woo movies that were clearly inspired by uh, the revolution in editing that this, that this movie and other early James Bond films started. Well, thanks for, for doing it. We really appreciate yeah. you taking the time to talk to us about this. And, um, John, do you want to take us out? Sure. Um, that'll that'll do it for today on 007 by 7 Follow us on Twitter at 007 by 7 podcast or come over to our Facebook listeners group and chat us up about uh, whatever you want to talk about, Bond-wise or movie-wise, whatever. Um, and we'll see you next time. Bye, everybody. <laughs>